Yeah, today we are in Isaiah. This is one of the more sort of famous prophecies, I think, of um, Christ, of the Messiah coming. Um, if you want to just put the verses up on the screen. Sorry, Warren. Just that way we can see it as we go through, so that even if you don't have your Bible right in front of you, you can still see it. Um, just as a way of introduction, sort of brief overview of Isaiah's life. There's not really that much known about Isaiah apart from his prophecies, apart from um, his book. We know that he prophesied during the reigns of four kings of Judah. We see that at the very beginning of the book. Um, we see that he was a husband and a father. He had at least two children. Um, we know that he received his call to ministry around 740 BC, 740 years before Christ. Um, and we also know that he lived long enough to record the death of Sennacherib, which was in 681 BC. So sort of 59, 60 year um, ministry. According to Jewish tradition, Isaiah was actually eventually executed by being sworn in two. Um, it's quite a, a gruesome death. The book of Isaiah as a whole gives us a great insight, I think, into the character of God. Um, it's one of those ones where we have a real real clear picture of who God is. We see in chapter 6 just the holiness of God. We see the might of God. Um, yeah, we see that he is the ruler of all. In Isaiah 46, 9, God says, I am God, there is no other God. I alone am here, there is none like me. Um, yeah, and then in the time of Isaiah, we see that the people of Israel, the people of Judah, um, they were continually going after idols and false gods. They're worshipping their own creations instead of the one true God. And so that is just sort of the background that we are in as we come to chapter 9. Um, yeah, I'm just going to pray and then we'll get into it sort of verse by verse. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is true and inerrant and infallible. Lord, I pray this morning that as we go through it that you would teach us, that we would learn more about you and about the way that you work through your word, Lord. I pray that yeah, you just strengthen us and encourage us, that you teach us, that you'd reprove us. Lord, you know that scripture is good for all of these things. And so I pray that it would be effective in that this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Yep, so verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former times he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. This, um, this section, although in your Bibles it probably has a heading, is actually in the middle of a thought. Um, it's sort of carrying on from the end of chapter 8. Um, at the end of chapter 8 we see this judgment on the people of Israel, We see that, or on the people of Judah. We see that there is a a darkness and a distress in um, 8 verse 22 it says and they will look to the earth but behold distress and darkness the gloom of anguish and they will be thrust into thick darkness now, it's speaking of people who are going after necromancers and mediums but it's it's that that sort of darkness is where we end with chapter 8 and then beginning of chapter 9 we come in and go but there'll be no darkness for her who was in anguish there'll be no gloom Yeah, when it says her there, that is actually a reference to Judea. There'll be no gloom for Judea, the, the land there. And I think we see in this that God is continually changing and transforming. He is taking the sort of contemptible lands, the, the lands that nobody really likes, 
the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali, the places that were often the first to be invaded. They were far in the north of the country, first to be invaded, first to be captured and occupied, and then the last to be restored. And God takes these places and transforms them into a place that is glorious. He takes the highways, the way of the sea, the main roads, and makes them into a glorious passage. The places that were seen as defiled, he makes them beautiful. At this point, I want to just make a quick note. It talks about how he has made glorious the way of the sea. Obviously, this is talking about something future. This isn't talking about something that God has already done at this point. And this is something that the Bible scholars would call the prophetic perfect. He's going, because God is so faithful, because God is, is true to what he says, when you have prophecies, sometimes they will talk about something that God will do as if it has already been done. But it is so sure that it will be done that you can speak of it in that way. This is the prophetic perfect. I will refer back to that a bit later. But it just shows how faithful God is in what he does. Um, and then verse 2, it says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So we come, and back, we come back to focus on this light. The fact that there's no gloom, and then there's this light shining into the darkness. This verse might actually sound quite familiar to it. It's actually quoted in Matthew chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. And in Matthew, actually, we see this as a direct fulfillment. This is Matthew looking at Christ's ministry and going, here it is. This is the Old Testament, and here is Christ fulfilling it. It's actually when Christ sort of comes out of his wilderness temptation and comes and moves to Capernaum, moves to this place right on the Sea of Galilee and starts preaching the gospel. The people who once walked in darkness in this passage then we see as actually the people of Israel, the people that rejected Christ in his first coming. Yeah, by the time that Christ came to them, they had already been sent into exile. They had returned from exile. They had built the temple, um, or rebuilt the temple, I should say. They had been conquered. They had rebelled. There had been a whole load of... Um, political chaos really in the sort of 400 years between Malachi and Jesus and then they turned to legalism with the Pharisees and the Sadducees they've been seeking to, to please God by their own righteous acts instead of putting their trust and faith in God's promise to remove their sin which is what was symbolized by the sacrificial system the whole sacrificial system wasn't going this blood takes away my sin it's going, God will take away my sin, and this blood is a symbol of that. But Jesus came as the light. He came and brought light into the darkness. John chapter 1, I think, really captures this perfectly. John chapter 1, verses 4 to 9, it says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. This is really talking about Jesus as this light coming into the world. He is the Messiah who is making a way for anyone to come to God. He's coming into the darkness. You know, in the morning, like when you, you wake up, 
it's still, it's still a bit dark, and you, you go to the bathroom and you turn on the light, and it just blinds you. It just flashes in your eyes, and you're stumbling around trying to find the sink. That's what this light is like. You've been dwelling in darkness. You don't know what, what light looks like. You've been sort of um, surrounded by everyone else who is also in darkness. You're all sort of groping around trying to find something. And then Christ comes into the world. Christ comes and is the perfect light. He shows you exactly what you were looking for. He comes and says, I am the way. It's only through me. This is, this is what that light is. It's only through him. We then come to verse 3. Verse 3, we come to address God directly. It says, um, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoiced before they rejoice before you as with the joy at harvest, and they are glad when they as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Remember when we talked about that prophetic perfect thing just a couple of minutes ago? That's also going on here. Um, but as we as we look at prophecy in the Bible. We sort of need to understand how, how does prophecy actually work? When we see these prophecies, when, when we think about Isaiah making these prophecies, it was 700 years before Christ came. Malachi, the last prophet, was 400 years before Christ came. Did they have any sort of understanding of what this prophecy was? Did they have any understanding of when this would happen? I don't think that they did. Um, when a prophet was prophesying, he didn't know when it would be fulfilled. He didn't know if it would be tomorrow or next week, a couple of years from now, a hundred years from now, 700 years from now. A couple of prophecies are yet to be fulfilled. That's two and a half thousand years from now. It's a long time. And so this means also that there are prophecies that we have in the Old Testament that are yet to be fulfilled. There are prophecies that we have about the return of the Lord or the judgment of the Lord that we haven't seen happen yet. There are also prophecies that point to Christ that are fulfilled in him. There's also another type of prophecy where it's sort of half been fulfilled. It's been fulfilled in part, but not completely. One, of, one example of that happens in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, where Jesus walks into the synagogue in Nazareth um, he, he grabs the scroll of Isaiah, he unscrolls it, starts reading. This was all normal. This wasn't anything groundbreaking or new. He unscrolls it and reads from Isaiah chapter 61. Not that they had chapters at that point, but he gets this section in our Bibles, chapter 61, verses 18 and 19, and says, "The Spirit." So this is from Luke. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. At which point he stops, he rolls up the scroll, he gives it back to the attendant and goes and sits down. But if we actually go to Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, let me just flip there, you'll see that he actually stopped right in the middle of a sentence. So Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, 
to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all those who mourn. He didn't read out the bit about the day of the Lord's vengeance, the bit about the judgment. That's because that is yet to come. That hasn't happened yet. That will happen in the future when Christ returns and judges the world. So it's fulfilled in part in the return of Christ, in, in the first coming of Christ, and it'll be fulfilled in complete when he returns for the second time. Coming back then to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 3, we need to ask, has this been fulfilled? If we look at the Bible, if we look at history, if we look at the world today, can we look at this and say that this has been fulfilled? You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy, they rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Now, I don't think that we see this happening yet. We will. But I think what we see between the time of Isaiah and the time of Christ is the land of Israel being overrun by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, by Alexander the Great with the Greeks, by the Romans. This sort of ends in the sacking of Jerusalem in 70 AD and the people of Israel, the Jews, are sort of cast out into the dispersion. You could maybe make a case that this was the restoration of Israel in the 1940s. But I think that if we were to look at what is going on in Israel at the moment, we would go, I don't think that they've got increased joy right now. I don't think that their nation is multiplied right now. So I think we can see then that this is a future prophecy. We can go, look, we trust that there is a faithful God and he will fulfill this. He will restore the land. He will restore the joy to Israel. But this will only happen when there is widespread revival in Israel. This will only happen when the Jews accept Christ as the Messiah, when they see him for who he is. It is only when they accept the gospel, the good news that Jesus came as our Messiah, he lived a perfect life that we couldn't live, and he died in our place. He suffered the wrath that was meant for us, and in doing so, he provided a way to be reconciled to God. It is only when this is accepted by Israel, by, by anyone, that they will have joy. And this leads then on into verse 4. It says, For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. As we talk about the people of Israel, in the time of Isaiah specifically, 700, over 700 years before the coming of Christ, we can see that there was this great oppression and difficult difficulty. The people of Israel were split between two kingdoms. You had the land of Israel in the north and the land of Judah in the south with kings over each of them. Wicked kings and lawlessness, people that did not follow the law of God. And then the Assyrians were coming from the east and they looked like they were going to come and invade, constantly threatening. And they did actually come and invade in 736 BC. They attacked the northern kingdom of Israel. They take captive the people, mostly from the land of Naphtali, you know, that contemptible land in the north. Isaiah gives this prophecy that the, boak, the burden of the yoke of Assyria, this weight of oppression, will be broken off. 
They'll be no longer under subjugation, under oppression. They'll have freedom. And this oppression will be ended like God ended the oppression of the Midianites in Judges. If you look at Judges chapter 7 and 8, Gideon, the judge of Israel, is sent to overthrow the Midianites and restore order to the people of Israel, to the nation. In this case, instead of sending an army of thousands, God says, you get to go with 300 men and defeat this army of tens of thousands. And so they go to the outskirts of the Midianites' camp and ambush them. And as we know, when God commands something, he ensures it, it to happen and the Midianites are defeated. God takes a small number of men to defeat this military might, this world power, if you would. And so back in Isaiah 9, we see that he has done it before in Midian, and he will do it again in the future. He'll rescue the people of Israel from oppression. He'll rescue his people. This then gives hope for the future. Look at what God has already done. God can do that again. God will do that again. He is faithful. And not only will there be joy and rejoicing, not only will this time come when the yoke of burden is broken, but actually we see there in verse 5, it says, For every boot of the tramping warrior in the battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. We see that the clothing of warriors, the boots and the blood-soaked clothing will be used as fuel. There will no longer be any need for it because the one who is on the throne is the king of all kings and is peaceful and righteous and mighty. And ultimately, this whole passage is pointing to the coming Messiah, or in Greek, the Christ, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. The one who would come and rule and reign. And now, although not all of these prophecies have been fully fulfilled, he has returned. He has come once and will return even. And he will finish his fulfillment. And this, this picture of a yoke being broken, the yoke was sort of a symbol of oppression. It was a symbol of sort of slavery. It was going, you have to carry your master's um, weight. But when we come to Jesus, we see that he, he gives us a different yoke. In Matthew verse, uh, chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, it says, Come to me, all who labor, and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Isn't this such a picture of Jesus Christ as our King, as our Lord? Come all who labor. Do you work? Do you strive after something? It just never ends. You still have to get up tomorrow morning and go to work. You still have to try to get something done. Come to Jesus. Come, sit at his feet. He is gentle. He is humble. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. Come to him and stop striving after the world. Stop trying to fill that hole yourself because it is only in Christ that there'll be happiness. It is only in Christ that you will have true joy, everlasting joy, joy that doesn't leave you. He will give you rest, a rest that is eternal, a rest that doesn't 
go away on Monday morning, but a rest that allows you to lean on him, to uphold you. And when he returns, when he rules physically, there'll be a time of global rest, a time where the things of the military, the uniforms, the boots, they'll be turned into fuel. The instruments of war will be turned into farming equipment. Can you imagine seeing a tank plow some of the fields out in, in Lincolnshire? It'll be a time like no other because Christ will be ruling. This then brings us down to, to verse 6. Verse 6, I think, is probably one of the most famous verses, certainly in this chapter. I know that I had to memorize it when I was at Bible college. Um, yeah, for, to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I memorized it in the NKJV, and so unto us is what's in my head. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. But I just want to go through this verse in really in-depth detail, because there is so much in this verse, and in the next verse as well, and I just want to unpack it so that we fully understand the implications of it. So we start out with the first word, for. This is a logical link. It links back to the previous chunk that we've been going through, saying, in the way that the light has dawned, in the way that this, this light has shone into the darkness, that has made glorious the way of the sea, because of that, we can look forward to this. And because of this, we can look back to that. And it's looking then at the rest of the verses and asking, how do we know what's going to happen? And we get the answer in the rest of the verse. So this carries on the thought, to us, for to us. These two, point, these two words point to whom this is going to happen to. To us here is referring to um, specifically Judah. That's where Israel was prophesying. Saying to us is to, to, um, to Judah. And why does it matter that it applies to Judah? Well, the tribe of Judah was where King David came from. King David, who was this great king, the, the man after God's own heart. The king who God promised would have a descendant sitting on his throne forever. This little phrase then to us is a clear designation that the Messiah was going to be from the tribe of Judah. He was going to sit on the throne of David. And then it says, a child is born. For to us, a child is born. This is the simplicity of Jesus Christ. He is God completely, truly God, but he was also truly man. He was a child. He'd be human. Not some angelic figure, not an apparition that you just suddenly see and it, it blinds your eyes. No, he was a child. And he went through what we went through. He was born of a virgin, but he was born nonetheless. He came into the world the same way that you did, the same way that I did. He didn't rock up on a fiery chariot. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 8, it says this, speaking of Jesus, 
who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We'll get more into this as we go through the verses, but I want you to see that this is God, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus. He came to earth to fix the relationship between man and God. He started coming in all of his glory and might, clearly revealing who he was. He chose to limit himself and come as a child and went to the cross in our place. This next phrase then in the verse builds upon the identity of the child. It says, to us a son is given. So not only is this child born, but he's going to be a son, be male, but he'll also be given. It's not something that just happens. It's not, oh, a son is born. That's, that's quite a normal thing that happens. But actually, the son will be given. In John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God, in his love, gave this son, his son, to come into the world and save us. So we have this child who is born, this son who is given, and he will govern, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Now to the ears of the Israelites, this would have been music. They've been used to oppressive kings, overlords, incompetent rulers who are obsessed with worshipping idols instead of worshipping the one true God. And we will see this government in the future. We will see that Christ will return and he will govern the world. He'll be the king over everything, not just spiritually, but physically as well. We'll see more of his kingdom in verse 7. But before we look at that, that government, we have four names, four titles that are given to this coming Messiah. And why do I say four instead of five? It's because they go together. You have wonderful God, a wonderful counselor, mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. If you just needed any more clarity as to who the Messiah is, it's quite a clear statement. Speaking of Jesus directly, when we look into the life of Christ, we see that these titles come through extremely clearly. The word wonderful here isn't just saying he'll be a great guy. This great guy, Jesus, I know, he's just a wonderful man. Now, it has connotations of miraculous, saying he'll be full of wonders. He'll be working wonders. It speaks of counselor who is full of miracles. And then counselor speaks of the wisdom of Christ. So he'll be this miraculous counselor, this miraculous wise man. The one who has all the answers. He is mighty God. This is actually a title that's, that's applied directly to, to God the Father as well, or God in Trinity, depending on how you look at it. It is El Gabor, Jesus Christ the Messiah, truly man, truly God, given this title of authority and power that only the true God of Israel has claimed to. He is everlasting Father. Now this can be a bit confusing. How is Jesus Christ the Son of God, the everlasting Father? Well, this, this um, 
this in Hebrew is not talking about his relationship within the Trinity, but talking about his relationship to time. He is the father of eternity, the father of the everlasting. He was there before time began, and he'll be there long after it is over, dwelling with us for eternity. Finally, he is the prince of peace. He's showing the nature of his future rule, but also who he is as a person. He will bring peace and prosperity into the world, and he'll be the ruler over everything. There'll be no wars or rumors of wars in his time. And then into verse 7. Verse 7, of the increase of his government and of the peace and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and up, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Christ is king, king of the universe. I think we all as believers would affirm that Christ is king of the universe. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20, I know it's a, a larger chunk, but I just want to read it through because it talks about who Christ is as God. It says, verse 15, Colossians 1, 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of, from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He is the one over all things. He is the ruler of the universe. If Christ wanted to, he could snap his fingers and everything would turn to dust. But he chooses not to. But he also has given authority in this world over to the devil. If we look at John chapter 14, verses 30 and 31, we read these out last week, actually. Christ says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. It's a very clear statement. The ruler of this world is coming. And we can see in that that, that is Satan coming to essentially resurrect to crucify him. Satan came into Judas and Christ was betrayed. He, he calls him the ruler of this world. Also in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, it says, this is Paul speaking, and you were dead in the, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. It's also talking about Satan, talking about the darkness that we see in this world coming from him. But it means that there is a certain amount of authority that Christ has gone, okay, the world is sinful. Satan, I'm not going to stop you at the moment. You have an element of free reign, a certain amount of authority and rulership. You could also look at Job. Satan comes to 
God and says, who is faithful? Who would you have me to, um, to try? Or elsewhere in the, in the Gospels, it talks about, Christ says, Satan has asked to sift you disciples like wheat. There is an element, and we don't like talking about it, but there is an element of authority that Satan has in the world currently. And I think we, we see that played out in the world, certainly, in the way that politics has gone, the way that the world interacts with each other. But there is a future time when Christ will return physically. There is a future time, a future hope, where Christ will return and rule. That is a certainty. He will rule physically, and his dominion, his authority, his power, will extend to the entire world for eternity. And Satan will be sent to the pit of hell. He will sit on the throne of David, the throne that he is the true heir of. And he'll fulfill the promise that God gave to David in 2 Samuel 7 to 18. We won't go there for time. But in this passage, God gives a promise to David saying that he will have a descendant who will sit on his throne and rule. And that kingdom of David will be established forever. This promise is one that will be fulfilled in the physical reign of Christ. And when Christ rules, he will rule with perfect justice, with perfect righteousness, with perfect peace. From the beginning, from the beginning of his reign for the rest of eternity. And it is the zeal of the Lord that guarantees this. This last little bit of verse 7, I think it's on the next slide. Yep. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal of the Yahweh of um, heaven's armies will do this. It is God who will do this. The word zeal here is also used for jealousy in the ESV. It's the other way that they translate it. Um, some translations have it as passionate commitment or intense devotion. But it's God's love for his people that means that he'll fulfill this. He will do it. So as I come to the end of this, this message, as I come to the end of this passage, I just want to give a few points of application. Um, yeah, The first is this, Christ is the light. We've seen in this passage that Christ is the light. He is the one who comes into the darkness, who reveals all that is hidden. He is the one who is the truth, through whom we are able to be reconciled to God. If you don't know Christ this morning, come to him. We've seen that his yoke is light. He is gentle and lowly of heart. Come to him because he loves you and wants you to be in relationship with him. Come to him because he died for you. Washing your sin away by his blood. The second application is this. God is faithful. When we look at this passage, it's really clear to see God's faithfulness already, I think. And be assured that he remains faithful. We know that Christ came 2,000 years ago and died in the cross, on the cross in our place, providing the way of salvation. He came bringing the light. We also see in the passage here that there are things that God has said will happen that haven't happened yet. But we know that they will happen because God is faithful. Because God has said it. But God's faithfulness doesn't just end with prophecies in Scripture. It also extends to us. God is faithful to us. 
You can rely on him because he said that he'll never forsake us. Because he has said that nothing can separate us from his love in Christ Jesus. Some examples in our lives of God being faithful is we live somewhere. Up until the beginning of September, we didn't have anywhere to live. And God in his faithfulness provided a place for us to live. Provided a roof over our heads. God is faithful. So if you're going through a tough time at the moment, a time where you just don't know what's happening maybe, it just seems a bit of a mess, you can lean on God because he is faithful. He will carry you through. My third and final point of application is that Christ is returning to rule. Here on earth, we are Christ's ambassadors. It is our job to go out and make him known then. We don't labor for nothing. We don't work for some indeterminate future or goal, something that we maybe might happen. But we know for certain that Christ will return. He will come and he'll walk this world again, but this time as ruler. As believers, we are serving a king whose reign will never end, a king who is just and righteous, a king who is perfect in everything. And yet at the same time, this is the king who saw fit to be born among the animals 2,000 years ago. As we go about this week, how does the reality of Christ's return and future rule affect your walk with him? Do you live in, in the hope of seeing Christ physically? And the fact that he could return tomorrow? He says no one knows the time or the hour except the Father. How does that affect the way that you interact with your neighbors or your family members that don't know Christ? Let me pray, and then I'll hand back over to the worship team. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. Father, I pray that if there is anything of me that isn't useful, that isn't of you, that it be forgotten. And Lord, I pray that the things that are of you would stick. That you'd help us to apply these things to our life, our lives. We would honor and glorify you with what we do, Lord. Pray all these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.